this is Sam of Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help support them to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. And if you support at any level, even if it's just a dollar, you'll have access to my patron-only lectures, including my upcoming one about the mythology of Robin Hood. So I left off at the end of September with a lecture about the beginnings of civilization in India, or the general area we now call South Asia. And I said that I would follow up with a discussion of the roots, the foundations of Hinduism, the belief system we today call Hinduism which arose gradually in stages over basically that same period of time that I talked about last time, from the Vedic Age and the Indo-Aryan migrations up through the Classical Era and the Post-Classical Era after the fall of the Gupta Empire. So what is Hinduism? If we talk about definitions, as I love to do, what exactly do we mean by Hinduism? That's a fairly new modern term for a broad collection of beliefs and practices that we today refer to as a religion or as one of the world religions alongside Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, etc. But of course, as I've explained before, that term religion comes out of the context of Christianity, and it's very loaded with expectations and connotations that don't necessarily fit when you apply it in other places. So it can actually be misleading to call it a religion. But basically, by Hinduism, we mean the collection of traditional teachings, beliefs, and practices that were developed and synthesized within India in the ancient and classical eras before the beginning of the Islamic conquest and that have been handed down and transmitted to the modern world. And at root, the word Hindu just means Indian or pertaining to India. And it comes from the ancient word Hind, which just means India, the land around the Indus Valley. And so if we stick an ism on it, it can sound like we're talking about some singular, well-bounded thing, like a creedal faith, like you see with Christianity or Islam. But that's not what it is fundamentally. Hinduism really just means the things that people in India traditionally do. And it's an evolving tradition, as I said, synthesized over time in conversation with other belief systems like Buddhism, Jainism, and then later also Islam. And if you want to understand Hinduism, there are a lot of parallels to the concept of Judaism, which I discussed in an earlier lecture about Judaism, what is it and where does it come from? And as I argued there, Judaism comes, it comes from the Greek Judaismos, which originally just means doing things that Jews do, or you could say Jewing. And basically, you can understand the word today to just mean the beliefs and practices of the Jewish people. And likewise, Hinduism is something similar, but pertaining to the traditions stemming from the ancient civilization of India. And Hinduism does not have a core doctrinal creed. There's no equivalent to, say, the Nicene Creed or the Shahada in Islam. 
It has no closed canon, so there's no distinct set of texts that are considered authoritative and sacred to the exclusion of others. Rather, Hinduism has a layered collection of different texts of various kinds with various different sorts of sanctity and authority and different degrees of sanctity and authority. And Hinduism does not pertain exclusively to gods or the afterlife or these sorts of things that we tend to think of as definitive of religion. Rather, Hinduism is a comprehensive and open-ended philosophy of life and human conduct, which was developed alongside and in contradistinction to Buddhism, which has a more simplified ethical code centering on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and so on. So in a way you could say Hinduism, although it deals with the sorts of questions of metaphysics, the soul, eternal life that we associate with religion, it is in another sense kind of the opposite of religion. It is not a set of doctrines that one must ascribe to. So this sort of complex, layered, open-ended belief system has a number of layers to it that one can attach to and trace back to the different eras of its development within India. So just to explain what some of these layers are, and this will be a lot easier to follow if you heard my previous lecture about the development of India through this age, there is a possible prehistoric layer of certain core ideas, practices, deities that may stem from the Indus Valley civilization or other prehistoric societies around South Asia. But their contribution into Hinduism is uncertain. It's a matter of speculation, but it probably was something. Then there's the very important and fundamental Vedic layer, which is a set of worship practices and ethical codes that were brought into India by the early Indo-Aryan migrants from Central Asia over the course of the second millennium BCE, after the breakdown of the Indus Valley civilization. And these ideas and practices and codes have been transmitted through tradition and very importantly through a series of scriptures called the Vedas, which began as collections of hymns, ritual texts, and commentaries on rituals written down, collected and edited between about 1200 BC and 500 BC, at a time when the Indo-Aryan people were generally shepherds and animal herding peoples who slowly began to take up farming and settled life, and then also writing over the course of the Vedic era. There's then the classical layer, dating from the classical age, the time of cities, large states, and empires, which lasted from about 500 BC to 500 AD, similar to what we call the classical era in Europe and the Mediterranean. And in the classical age, there was an early process of consolidation, composition of texts in a new form of Sanskrit called classical Sanskrit, which became the language of literature and learning all throughout most of India. And there was the emergence of monumental temple building and other art forms. And there also in the classical age was the formation of heterodox philosophies, which generally were called shramana, which were schools of thought that dealt more with the soul and spiritual enlightenment, that de-emphasized the rituals and the hymns of the Vedas. 
And some of these shramanas, particularly Buddhism and Jainism, really succeeded, took off, and became their own alternative belief systems alongside this Vedic form of Hinduism. And you may remember the Maurya Emperor Ashoka adopted Buddhism and made it the state religion of the Maurya Empire, the first extensive empire to rule over most of India. And so under Ashoka and the later Maurya emperors, the empire tended to suppress the study of the Vedas, Vedic rituals, and the worship of Vedic gods and more and more turned society in the direction of Buddhism, and there also was a growth of Jainism. But in this situation, certain people lost out. For one thing, the priestly caste, called Brahmins, who specialized in the study of the Vedas and the performance of Vedic rituals, and also the various local cults, languages, groups devoted to particular regional gods and their rituals and myths, that had not yet been absorbed into this kind of growing Buddhist consensus. So this provided a base of opposition who pushed back against the flourishing and the predominance of Buddhism. And particularly Brahmins who were distributed around the different towns and villages all around India provided a sort of natural leadership class who undertook a so-called Hindu synthesis, or greatly furthered the Hindu synthesis. So during and after the Maurya Empire, from about the 300s BC to the 200s AD, the Brahmin class allied with local groups, villages, tribal groups, that wanted to maintain their distinctive practices, and they played a sort of Janus-faced role, where the Brahmins would teach central Vedic ideas and rituals to these local and provincial groups, while also learning their various local beliefs and practices and weaving them together into a sort of growing canon of texts and teachings. And so they created a corpus of teachings, myths, practices, and art forms, that were gathered together and shared all around different parts of India, particularly through classical Sanskrit, but also through some other regional languages like Tamil. And so this sort of Hindu synthesis was already well underway when there was the emergence of a new empire under the Gupta dynasty. So when the Guptas come to power, they then re-adopt these traditional practices, study of the Vedas, worship of Vedic gods and other Indian gods that have been adopted into the Hindu synthesis. And the Gupta regime patronizes Brahmin teachers and sages, patronizes temples, ashrams, or sort of spiritual retreats, and art forms that promote this new Hindu belief system. And these spiritual teachers in the Gupta age tried to compete with, peaceably compete with, and win over devotees from Buddhism and Jainism. And in doing so, they often emphasized the spirituality and the spiritual dimension of these Hindu teachings. And one very important example of this is the great Gupta court poet called Kalidasa, who took for himself a name, Kalidasa, meaning servant of the goddess Kali, and who acted as a spokesperson of a sort of new spiritualized devotion to the traditional Indian gods, which could coexist with and compete effectively with Buddhism. 
So all of these developments had happened then by the time the Gupta Empire fell apart in the 400s AD. And this leads into the immediate post-classical period after the breakup of that empire, when you have political fragmentation, but continuing religious ferment and exchange. And so there was a sort of continuing spiritual and philosophical unity and development, which outlasted the political unity of the empire. And these post-classical teachers and sages continue to emphasize internal spirituality, metaphysics, and the search for enlightenment. And this was also a period of flourishing, in particular, of a school of philosophy called Vedanta, which had existed for hundreds of years previously, has very deep roots, probably going back to the Vedic age, but which reached a new height and a new flowering in the post-classical period, particularly led by the teacher Adi Shankara in the 700s. And Adi Shankara was in particular a promoter of the Advaita, or non-division, school of Vedanta. But I'll explain more of that later, of what that means. We'll leave that for the moment. And he reportedly founded a series of ashrams all around the four corners of India, north, south, east, and west, to promote Advaita Vedanta. And this spurred on then further the efflorescence of ashrams as a new kind of center of spiritual teaching and learning. And this same period in the 7 and 800s also saw the early beginnings of a movement called Bhakti, which is a spiritual worship movement. The word Bhakti means something like attachment, and it advocates a sort of mystical union of the worshiper with a deity. And so in a lot of ways, the spirit of bhakti was similar to Vedanta, but it was more popular. It was not so limited to an intellectual elite. And it put forward a style of mystical and musical worship that began first in the south, in southern India, in the 700s, and then gradually grew and infiltrated northward over the next few hundred years. So with the addition of Vedanta and bhakti, the basic contours of Hinduism as we know it today, with its multiple layers of texts, ethical teachings, deities, rituals, and sort of spiritual metaphysics, the full body of what we think of today as Hinduism was already then in place by the post-classical period. So with those layers of history in mind, let's look at the basic scriptures and texts of Hinduism, the deities that are worshipped or revered by Hindus, the basic ethics of Hinduism, how one lives a life according to Hindu teachings, and the metaphysics of Hinduism. So as for the texts or scriptures, as I said, Hinduism does not have a closed canon. Rather, it has an accumulation of sacred texts addressing different aspects of life. There is a basic division in the Hindu scriptures between what are called Shruti and Smriti. So the Shruti means that which is heard, and it can be taken to mean scriptures that are divinely revealed or that are received. And these mainly include the Vedas and commentaries that are attached to the Vedas. 
Then there are the smriti, which means that which is remembered. And these are traditional texts that have been penned and passed down through time. So to begin then with the Vedas, which make up most of what we consider the shruti, the Vedas, as I said, were originally composed as oral hymns and ritual guides that were then gradually collected and edited into books in the Vedic era. There are four Vedas. The oldest one is the Rig Veda, which seems to have been compiled and taken on basically its present form by 1200 BC. And then following it are the Yajur Veda, Sama Veda, and Atar Veda. And each of these Vedas contains a variety of different materials sort of in interaction with each other. So there are four basic kinds of texts that you find in each of the Vedas. Firstly, there are Samhitas, which are mantras and blessings that might in some way invoke uh, the favor or protection of a god. Then there are Aranyakas, which are texts about offerings and other rituals, particularly sacrifices. Then there are the Brahmanas, which are explications of the spiritual meanings of those rituals. And they often put forward sort of early basic metaphysical theories that emphasize the transcendence of divinity or the divine principle, which is called Brahman. And then finally, the Upanishads, which are purely spiritual texts that are concerned with the nature and fate of the Atman or the soul, and that deal with spiritual practices like meditation. So then following the Vedas, there is the Puranas, which are a very wide-ranging collection of ancient texts that mostly came in the centuries after the Vedas that are written in mainly Sanskrit and also in Tamil and that deal with the myths and sacred mythic history of the gods and humankind and particularly India. And some of the Puranas focus on a particular god, many of them especially on the god Vishnu, which I'll talk about later. Some deal with the creation of the cosmos and the earth and of humankind. And some of the Puranas particularly recount the creation of the first human, who was called Manu, who was a hermaphrodite, who then gave birth to the first family, and whose descendants went on to invent farming and civilized life, who survived the Great Flood, and then afterwards founded the first cities and gave rise to the civilization of India. So you can see some similarities here, say, to the Hebrew Bible's book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, later Noah and the Great Flood, and so on. And some of these parallels might be due to shared influences from Mesopotamia which is right between India and the Near East. Following the Puranas, there are the great epics, which are also very important in the teaching and practice of Hinduism. And the main two important foundational epics of Hinduism are called the Mahabharata, or the sort of great story of India, and the Ramayana. So firstly, the Mahabharata is a bit older. It's a poetic epic that discusses a dynastic feud that took place reportedly in the Kuru Kingdom, which was a Vedic-era state in the upper Gangetic Plain, basically around the area that's now Delhi. 
and that probably is based on events that took place around 1000 BC, more or less. But the epic was composed and edited and put into its present form sometime later, maybe around 400 BC. The Mahabharata is the longest poem in the world. It contains about 200,000 lines of verse. So it's a massive object of learning and study that probably, again, began as an oral poetic tradition before it was woven together into a text. And the Mahabharata deals with a dynastic feud between two related families, the Kauravas and the Pandavas, which culminated in a massive destructive battle in which many characters in the epic are forced to take sides and decide whether they will go and fight against friends and relations. And in the course of preparation for this cataclysmic battle, the compassionate wise man Krishna appears and gives advice to one of the warriors named Arjuna. His sort of sermon of advice deals with how to follow one's duty, or dharma, which I'll talk about more, and how to reconcile worldly and spiritual needs, and how to reconcile power and justice with compassion. And this sermon delivered by Krishna is called the Bhagavad Gita. And it puts forward a sort of stoic philosophy. This sort of stoic philosophy insists on the performance of duty, the acceptance of destiny with detachment, and it contains many famous aphorisms that sort of encapsulate this attitude towards life, such as, quote, the wise man lets go of all results, whether good or bad, and is focused on the action alone. And a man's own self is his friend, a man's own self is his foe. So it's basically internal self-understanding and self-discipline that determines the quality of your life. And, quote, it is better to live your own destiny imperfectly than to live in imitation of someone else's life with perfection. So there's this kind of philosophy of philosophical detachment and resignation. And the Bhagavad Gita is widely famous. It's still studied and taught throughout India today. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi called it his, quote, moral dictionary. But if one looks at the rest of the Mahabharata outside of the Bhagavad Gita, it's a very complex epic involving many different characters dealing with all kinds of dilemmas. And arguably the main central character is a heroic woman named Draupadi, who is married to the five Pandava brothers. So this is one of the clans involved in this feud. And Draupadi is married to all five of these brothers because it seems that in some societies at this time, it was normal and customary for a woman. A woman could marry multiple husbands if they were all related in the same family. And she acts as kind of a leader of the Pandava camp. They win the war, but nonetheless, the general slide into chaos continues. It is a very tragic epic. And ultimately, the Pandavas and Draupadi resign, they abdicate their power, and they climb the Himalayan mountains in order to ascend into heaven. So it ends with this sort of renunciation of worldly power for the heavenly. And Draupadi in particular serves as a kind of archetype of female loyalty and constancy. 
Meanwhile, the other major epic, the Ramayana, focuses on a male hero named Rama. And it was composed a little later, maybe in the 400s BC. It's also very long, but shorter than the Mahabharata. And it deals with Rama, who is a dispossessed prince living in exile in the forest, together with his brother Lakshman and his wife Sita. And each of these characters is celebrated for their different virtues and their courage. But Sita is kidnapped by an evil ruler, and Ram and Lakshman must gather allies to go and rescue her, particularly using the talent of archery. And along the way, they ally with an exiled monkey king named Hanuman, who also becomes a major hero and revered figure from the Ramayana. They ultimately prevail, and they take the throne for Rama and reign over a splendorous golden age. So whereas the Mahabharata is very tragic and deals with social breakdown, the Ramayana describes success and the establishment of peace. And you may notice that the Ramayana has some very strange parallels to the Robin Hood legend as we know it today, which also centers on a dispossessed hero living in the forest with his band of brothers and his female consort, who then is kidnapped and must be saved from an evil power, and even goes down to the details that Robin Hood is a great archer. And you can see Robin Hood's support for Richard the Lionheart against his usurper brother, Prince John, is parallel to the figure of Hanuman, the dispossessed king who also is restored to the throne in the Ramayana. So there are all these sort of odd parallels, but I'll probably discuss that later when I do a patron-only podcast on the Robin Hood mythos. Beyond the Vedas, the Puranas, and the great epics, there is then a series of different sutras and shastras dealing with different aspects of life. Sutras and shastras are sort of collections of wise teachings, principles, adages. Sutras, that word originally means thread, and it usually refers to short poetic statements, aphoristic statements that are passed down orally, often memorized in verse, before they are collected into books. Whereas shastras are usually more developed treatises written more often in prose and that sometimes build off of and develop ideas from the sutras. So there are sutras and shastras dealing with various topics, but they are understood to follow a kind of underlying structure. So there's a certain philosophy that is rooted originally in the Vedas that then is further developed in the sutras and shastras which says that people are driven by three basic aims or objects, also called purushartas. So purusha, you might remember, is a name for sort of the primal or cosmic man, and artha means goal or object of action. So there are three purushartas, or sort of goals of human life, namely dharma, artha, and kama. So dharma means duty or morality, so it deals with this sort of correct ethical action in life based partly on one's specific social role and also on general ethical principles. Then there is artha, which is worldly ambition or success, things like political power, economic prosperity. And then thirdly, kama, sensuality. 
And there are different sacred scriptures that deal with each of these three main guiding pursuits. So as for Dharma, there are firstly the Dharma Sutras, which are collections of, po- of poetic aphorisms written at different times in the first millennium BC, probably mostly between about 600 and 100 BC, and that deal with personal conduct, treatment of animals, proper diet, sex and sexuality, family law and family relationships, and the divisions of society into different classes and castes, and just war. And then these were further uh, developed and elaborated in the Dharma Shastras, which were written much later in about the 2nd to 7th century CE, and that deal with law, particularly the administration of justice, punishments, and penances. Then pertaining to artha, or worldly ambitions, there is the Artha Shastra, which is a long collected treatise on war, military affairs, governance, and politics. And this book has been compared to the works of Machiavelli, like The Prince and The Discourses, which of course came centuries later. And the Arthashastra is traditionally attributed to Chanakya, who was the statesman that orchestrated the rise of the Maurya Empire. He sort of acted as a mentor and you could say a kind of grand vizier to Chandragupta Maurya, who founded the Maurya dynasty. But Really, in truth, the authorship and editorship of the Arthashastra is uncertain, and different parts were probably written between about the 2nd century BC and the 3rd century CE, and the book was lost in later centuries. It fell into obscurity and was completely dropped out of the Indian canon until it was rediscovered in the early 1900s and published for the first time in 1909. And then thirdly, as for Kama, you can probably guess there is the Kama Sutra, which is a guidebook on romantic love, sex, and sensuality. It's more far-reaching than just, you know, sexual positions. And it's a mixture of prose and poetry. There probably were poetic aphorisms first that were then integrated together with a sort of scaffolding of prose. And it was collected and edited probably in the 3rd century CE, so around the same time that the Arthashastra was finalized. Then beyond those, beyond those main important books dealing with Dharma, Artha, and Kama, there are various other Shastras that deal with different topics or that put forward particular theories and schools of thought. So there are shastras dealing with the six traditional schools of Hindu philosophy called Samkhya, Yoga, Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Mimamsa, and Vedanta. And out of those, we don't have to get into all of them, but you probably have heard of yoga, a bodily spiritual practice. And I've also mentioned already Vedanta, which grew to become very important. And then there are other shastras dealing with fields of knowledge like medicine, chemistry, architecture, various art forms. And there are the mystical tantras, which fall into this sort of basic body of work, which deal with specific mystical spiritual disciplines and that were mostly written in the post-classical period. So out of that massive corpus of works, Some of those texts deal specifically with the worship of particular gods. 
So Hinduism has a very complex pantheon with different gods and deities of various origins and differing levels of importance. Different groups within Indian civilization sometimes focus more on particular gods or particular forms of gods. There's sometimes disagreement over which god is supreme, whether any god is supreme over the others. And it is sometimes argued, especially in Vedanta, but other schools of thought, that all the gods in some way represent a single transcendent divine essence, or Brahman. So there are different ways of understanding and approaching the gods. But just to explain who these sort of core important deities are, firstly, there are the Vedic gods. So gods that are specifically addressed in the hymns and prayers found in the Vedas, and that date back to probably to the Indo-Aryan tribes that migrated down into India. So the most important god in the Vedas who's discussed most often is Indra, who is a warrior god who deploys lightning and thunder. There is also Varuna, a ruler god who is the upholder of law and order. There is Agni, a god of wealth and prosperity, who is always invoked in any sacrifice because a sacrifice is an offering of some kind of wealth. And then there are various other gods. Some are understood as embodiments of natural forces like wind or water. And there are also some mysterious figures that appear in the Vedas that are hard to pin down exactly. There is a female divine principle called Devi, which just means goddess, who's understood as sort of the feminine counterpart of these male gods like Indra and Varuna. There's also a deity called Soma, who is identified with a brewed drink that can serve to connect the worshiper to the gods. And so there are theories that Soma maybe is at root a psychogenic drug, something maybe like psilocybin, that also was understood to represent some divine principle. So there are various Vedic gods, and many of them in some way are still involved in Hindu worship today, but they are not generally the most important. There are very few devotees of Indra or Varuna. Rather, there are other post-Vedic gods that came into the pantheon during the course of the Hindu synthesis, mainly in the classical era. So there are various post-Vedic gods and goddesses that play different roles in Hinduism, but there are two that stand out as the most important. And those big two are Shiva and Vishnu. So Shiva, firstly, is understood as a god of destruction and regeneration, or a god of death and rebirth. He's often depicted in Hindu art as a lord of the dance, so he, he sort of represents the dance of destruction, which then can give way to new life. He has particular visual attributes. He often holds a trident. He's associated with phallic symbols. And when he's not shown as a dancer, he's sometimes shown in a seated pose. And the origins of Shiva are uncertain, but he may have roots in the Indus Valley civilization or maybe in the broader Dravidian society that might have been connected to the Indus Valley civilization before the arrival of the Indo-Aryans. There is actually one single Indus Valley seal. Most Indus Valley seals show pictographic characters and figures like animals, like cattle, but there is one that shows a seated horned male male figure with a phallic symbol, and so it's thought that this might represent a deity that is the progenitor of Shiva. But regardless, 
one way or another, this deity was drawn into the Hindu synthesis. And certain Hindus through the ages have been particularly focused on the worship of Shiva as kind of representing the ultimate divine principle. For instance, the poet Kalidasa that I mentioned before was a Shaivite, which is a word for a, a devotee of Shiva. Shiva is often a focus for ascetics, people who renounce the world, who live hermit lifestyle or a lifestyle of renunciation, fasting, who give up worldly goods and comforts. Often these people are Shaivites or devotees of Shiva who see the god as kind of representing the possibility of drastic change and overturning of the world as it exists. Now, on the other hand, Vishnu is a peacekeeping god. He's the god who's understood to maintain order and harmony and continuity. And his attributes, his visual attributes in art include the chakra or wheel and the conch shell. And these symbols represent eternity and continuity. The chakra is circular. The conch shell is a spiral that turns ever outward around the same center. And likewise, the origins of Vishnu are unclear, but he does appear as a figure in the Mahabharata and in the Puranas. And so he he clearly has very early roots. And in those texts, Vishnu is said to be essentially free or transcendent. And they even say things to the effect that anything that is free of the bounds of time or life, anything that is eternal, is Vishnu. And Vishnu is a focus of devotion more for householders. So people who are trying to maintain a, you know, a healthy, prosperous life and continuity in the home or the family might be more focused on Vishnu as opposed to Shiva. And they are called Vaishnavites. So you have these sometimes competing trends or patterns in Hinduism between Shaiva, the, the focus, the veneration of Shiva, and Vaishnava on Vishnu. And Vishnu also takes on many different forms and personas. And for instance, it's traditionally understood that Krishna, the wise teacher in the Mahabharata, and Rama, the hero of the Ramayana, are forms or appearances of Vishnu. So they they can be called, in this sense, avatars of Vishnu. So this concept of avatar, it has very early roots, but it was particularly used extensively during the process of Hindu synthesis when Buddhism was ascendant and the Brahmin class and other teachers and sages were trying to sort of synthesize and put forward a new form of Hinduism as against Buddhism. And this was a very useful concept because, as I said, there were different groups all around India that had their own particular local gods or spirits or particular heroes in their stories. And when these different ideas were being brought together and synthesized, one could say that some local god or hero was in fact an avatar of a god like Vishnu that was known all throughout India. So in this way, it made it possible to build a synthesized canon of stories about a central pantheon of gods. So customarily, Hindus believe that all of these various gods are real and valid in their different ways, but they might be, as I said, more devoted to one or another, and to even argue that one particular god is the supreme or highest god, and so there is sometimes friction, particularly between Vaishnavites and Shaivites. So it's not as if you know all Hindus believe the same thing or practice in the same way. 
Now, some people may have heard of a particular concept that has very deep roots in Hinduism, but that has particularly been promoted and popularized in recent years. And that's the notion of the Trimurti, or triumvirate, of three main gods. So that's the notion that the the most important gods of Hinduism are Brahma, the creator god who created the cosmos and the earth, then Vishnu, the maintainer, then Shiva, the destroyer. And some have even formed this idea into an acronym. They say that these three gods represent generation, operation, and destruction, and hence they form the acronym God. Now, it is true that this idea of a Trimurti, of these three principal gods forming a kind of cycle, that does go back into the Puranas, but it's not really a central idea to most Hindus, and it's been really kind of exaggerated how much it can sum up Hindu mythology or metaphysics. And in particular, Brahma is a comparatively minor god, and devotion to Brahma is comparatively very rare. There is only one large temple devoted to Brahma in all of India, and he's usually understood as a secondary deity. For instance, in the Puranas, those texts say that Brahma was actually created by Vishnu, and so he is derivative of another god. So this notion, although it's it's popularly circulated, especially in the West, it can be seen as an idea that's kind of been plucked out and promoted to make Hinduism look more similar to Christianity and the, the Trinity. You know, the word Trimurti even sounds reminiscent of Trinity. But really, overwhelmingly, the main focal points of worship for most Hindus are Shiva and Vishnu. Meanwhile, of course, aside from those, there are various other deities that were brought into the pantheon in the classical age. So there are various female goddesses, such as Parvati, Lakshmi, and Kali, who are all seen in some way as partaking in the essence of Devi, the transcendent goddess, but who have been differentiated into personas. So whereas when one looks in the Vedas, one sees references to Devi, this sort of single, transcendent, impersonal, feminine principle, in the Hindu synthesis, you see particular embodied goddesses. And some of these are actually seen as female consorts to male gods. For instance, Lakshmi, the goddess of wealth and prosperity, is understood as the wife of Vishnu, and Parvati is the consort of Shiva. But the metaphysics of these marriages, of course, are complicated. You can see them as kind of man and wife, or alternatively, in a more mystical way, as sort of male and female aspects of the same divine figure. There are also other important gods, the most significant of which probably is Ganesh, who is the son of Shiva and Parvati, and who is depicted usually with an elephant head. And the earliest known depictions of this type of god with a human body and elephant head are seen on coins from the Indo-Greek kingdom in the 2nd century BC. So it's possible that maybe the original prototype of Ganesh came from some Greek or Persian source and then was adapted into the Hindu synthesis. And Ganesh is a patron of arts, sciences, and intellectual pursuits. And he also is a remover of obstacles. So he's often invoked when one is beginning an important venture, like starting a business or a marriage. So we've discussed the corpus of Hindu texts and the basic pantheon of gods. 
what then are the practices? How does one live life as a Hindu? Well, there are certain continuing Vedic practices, such as the basic devotional offerings and hymns that are found in the Vedas that are traditionally called Shrauta, and the passages in the Vedas describing these rites are called Shrauta Sutras. The main central ritual of Vedic practice is the yajna, which is a sacrificial offering burned in a fire. Then along with these Shrauta Sutras, there are so-called Shalba Sutras, which are mathematical commentaries, particularly aimed at the correct design and configuration of sacrificial altars and temples. And some of these are very sophisticated. For instance, what we call the Pythagorean theorem is actually found repeatedly in these Shalba Sutras in the Vedas. You know, it says that the diagonal of a rectangle when squared gives the same area as the sum of the squares of the two sides of the rectangle. And this was folded into a sort of sacred geometry that is understood to have cosmic and mystical meanings. Also in the Vedas, there are so-called Griha Sutras, which describe basic household rituals and ceremonies or rites of passage, also in Sanskrit called samskaras. So these are rituals marking events like birth, marriage, funerals. And from this Vedic age, it seems there emerged a special priestly class that specialized in administering rites and ceremonies, and these were called Brahmins. From that root, you know, Brahman, which means divinity or heavenly principle. Then alongside these sort of basic Vedic ceremonies, there gradually developed a Hindu ethics, an accumulated wisdom of how to live well. And these are rooted first and foremost, of course, in Dharma, which is understood to be prior to the other purushartas. It's the sort of basic object of life. And dharma, the root of the word means something like firmness, and it can be related to continuity, stability, dependability. Now, arguably the most important and pervasive principle of dharma is non-violence or non-injury, or in Sanskrit, ahimsa. And references to this ideal of ahimsa appear in the Vedas. They then grow, and this principle becomes more emphasized as the Vedas go on. It's an important theme in the Yajur Veda, and it's developed further in the Upanishads, the sort of spiritual commentaries and disquisitions that are woven into the Vedas. And arguably, Ahimsa is really enshrined as central in the Mahabharata. And there is a passage in the Mahabharata that says, quote, Ahimsa is the highest dharma. Ahimsa is the highest self-control. Ahimsa is the greatest gift. Ahimsa is the best practice. Ahimsa is the highest sacrifice. Now, alongside this principle of nonviolence towards living creatures, there also are various rules about the avoidance of impurities, such as dead bodies or excrement. And there are particular rules about the social order and social relationships. So one's dharma is not always universal, like, say, the principle of ahimsa. A lot of it depends upon one's particular social position and the duties that come with it. 
And society, it seems, beginning from the later Vedic age and then developing through the classical age, society was divided into four varnas, or basic social classes. And these four are the Brahmins, the priestly class, which has the highest status, at least spiritually speaking. Then the Kshatriya, or the ruling and warrior class. Then the Vaishyas, which is the tradesmen, including merchants and artisans, which it roughly means villagers. And then the Shudras, the manual laborers. And so this overall ordering of society into the four Vernas, you can see it as similar in a way to the social order of medieval Europe, which has the three estates. Firstly, the clergy, you could say the priestly class, the people of the church. Then the nobility, which is in theory the warrior class. And then the commoners, the people who labor. So there's quite a parallel there, but you may notice that the Indian, the Hindu system, has four classes, not just three, because it makes a distinction between tradesmen and manual laborers. So whereas the Europeans said, well, everyone who's not noble or a member of the clergy is a commoner, Hinduism makes a distinction between Vaishya and Shudra, and I would theorize that that may be why this Hindu social order has endured longer and has greater stability because it acknowledges that difference in roles and interests between what in Europe came to be called the bourgeoisie and the poor. <laughs> and, you know, this resentment and status anxiety on the part of the bourgeoisie in Europe is part of what led to the big ruptures like the French Revolution that did away with the old regime, whereas arguably that sort of tension was taken into account and folded into the social system in India. Now, beyond those four vernas, society is further composed of smaller castes. So when one speaks of the Brahmins, they are not a caste. They are a verna, or overall class of society. The castes are smaller tribal, village, or guild groups, which tend to be focused in a particular region and that have their own distinctive traditions and social roles. And some of them, even like European guilds, might practice one particular occupation. The castes traditionally have different statuses, various you know, status hierarchies, even within the given vernas. They are endogamous. One customarily marries within one's caste. Meanwhile, the, each caste has a set, within it has a set of gotras, or sort of clan lineage groups. So customarily one marries within one's caste, but outside one's gotra, because that is considered incestuous. So there are very particular rules about how to marry correctly in the Hindu social order. However, there have long been some people who were totally outside of the caste system. And they might come from small indigenous tribes. They might have been rejected from a caste for one reason or another. So there's always been, you could say, a kind of underworld of so-called outcasts. And these often took up very impure tasks, occupations that were seen as, as polluting, like dealing with dead bodies or human waste. It seems that these outcasts emerged as a visible social group or class in the Gupta period, in the later classical age. And there very quickly was a controversy about how to approach these so-called outcasts, and particularly Brahmins, who were the experts on ethics and ritual 
disagreed about how to approach outcasts and whether to shun them or whether to advocate for them and give them a place in Hindu society. And as I'll mention later, the the Bhakti movement emerged in the post-classical period, and it often took a very inclusive and egalitarian approach to society, and the advocates for the outcasts often were devotees of bhakti. This may have been, you know, out of principle and compassion, but also out of the danger of possibly losing these outcasts to other belief systems like Buddhism or Islam, which did not make those same distinctions. And that's long been a tension within Indian civilization, how to approach the outcasts, or as they're currently called Dalits, and whether they will be in the Hindu fold or go over to some other faith. So aside from these various ethical teachings about personal conduct and the social order, there are also special worship rituals where one shows a reverence to the gods. And these have evolved from the Vedic Shrauta into sometimes complex forms known today as puja. And these pujas may involve prayers, offerings, invocations. They can take place at a temple or also at a home shrine, sometimes with an object or a statue representing the deity. Prayers and pujas can also be offered at special holy places and pilgrimage sites like shrines and temples. There are holy objects connected with deities or divine principles, also holy animals, particularly cattle. And it seems that cattle were in some way considered holy or otherworldly, even in the Vedic era. They were often the objects of sacrificial offerings. But then later, as animal sacrifice declined in popularity and as the rituals evolved, cattle came to be seen as sort of holy and revered animals that should not be killed. And hence, for instance, the eating of beef is taboo in Hinduism. Hinduism also has a ritual calendar with festivals devoted to different gods, but the most important of these is the festival of Diwali, which is an autumn festival taking place in October or November. It's a festival of light, and it represents the triumph of wisdom over ignorance and of justice over tyranny. It involves celebration, sometimes gifts, candle lighting, and pujas. And also, there's often customarily for Diwali, there are performances or pageants of the Ramayana, which of course involves the fall and then rise back to power of Rama and Sita, and can be seen to sort of symbolize the the triumph of wisdom and light, even after a period of exile. So beyond these very common and widespread shared Hindu practices, there also are specialized spiritual and meditative disciplines that certain devotees might take up. And some of these, it seems, were originally created by the Shramana spiritual schools of thought that arose in the classical age. And some of them have been carried on particularly by ascetics called sadhus, but also some of them might be taught and shared more widely among the general public. One of them is yoga, and yoga, it seems, has its roots in the Vedas, especially in the Upanishads, which discuss different forms of spiritual meditation. And it was then probably elaborated in the classical age into a sort of multidimensional bodily practice. 
These different spiritual and meditative disciplines are often taught at monasteries or more properly ashrams, which are places of retreat, sort of similar to what in the West are called monasteries. And the word originally at root means stages of life. And the ashrams are places for withdrawal and spiritual discipline and reflection. They're often in rural or isolated places. Many of them center on the teachings of a particular guru. And the ashrams, there were probably some sort of forerunners of ashrams going back into ancient times, but they increased dramatically after the fall of the Gupta Empire. So with the loss of that imperial court center for the new Hinduism, these practices sort of recentered on the ashrams as a new focal point. And some of them were not always withdrawn. They could also promote popular forms of piety among the populace. And the ashrams in particular became the base for a new form of devotional worship in the post-classical period that emphasized internal, emotional, or mystical union with the divine. And this movement came to be called, as I mentioned before, bhakti. And that word originally means something like attachment, and the movement started first in southern India, it seems in the 700s, but then gradually spread northward throughout the rest of India over the next several hundred years. And Bhakti promotes ecstatic devotional practices, centering particularly on music. It is aimed at invoking a particular deity and achieving union with the divine. And in a lot of ways, you can see it as reminiscent of Sufism, which arose around the same time from Persian roots and also of, of later spiritual renewal movements like Hasidism in Judaism. And the bhakti worship is usually aimed at some central deity, especially Vishnu. So it's generally, for the most part, a Vaishnava movement. And as I said, the word bhakti means something like attachment or conjoining. And it often uses marital and erotic metaphors, where a singer or speaker or, or teacher speaks in the voice of a bride meeting a, a bridegroom in the form of the god. And bhakti was cultivated especially in ashrams, but it spread and became widely popular. And today it's a very common aspect of Hinduism. So the songs of bhakti are called either kirtan or bahajan. And a kirtan is a more formally composed and recited song. Many of them have been written by famous composers whereas the bhajan is usually more open and it can be improvisational. Uh, bhajan also usually involves some form of call and response with the audience, thus sort of involving specialized singers and the general audience in a kind of joint performance that seeks to create a mystical mood and state of mind. So for an example, I'm going to play a recording of a bhajan called Radhe Govinda, which is very common popular bhajan. And the phrase that you hear repeated, Radhe Govinda, it has two words. The first word Radhe means goddess, and it's in the locative form, meaning it's addressing or invoking a goddess who's commonly just called Radha and who is understood to be a milkmaid who was the consort of Krishna. So remember that the wise man and musician who appears in the Mahabharata. 
And then the second word, Govinda, is a title of Krishna, which means Lord of the Cattle. And so the phrase together invokes the complete divine couple of Krishna and his wife, who reportedly was won over and wooed by Krishna's musical talent. So by repeating this phrase, you're sort of invoking the spiritual divine power of music and seeking to draw close to the deity in its both male and female aspects. So this particular rendition of Radhe Govinda is led by a male choir at an, an ashram in Andhra Pradesh in southeastern India, sort of within the original homeland of Pakti. And this particular ashram is called Prashanti Nilayam, and it's the main center of the Sai community, which is a modern-day Bhakti organization that was created by a particular guru in the 20th century. But the lyrics of this song and the style of it and the call and response that you'll hear, I think, are traditional. So you'll hear the call and response between the chorus and the audience. Very simple instrumentation, mainly just drums and hand clapping. You might faintly hear another instrument that I think is a woodwind instrument. <laughs> So bhakti, as I said, forms an important popular part of Hindu worship and practice, but there is also a metaphysical philosophy that has been developed within the Hindu tradition that seeks to sort of explain the different aspects of Hinduism and the, the underlying kind of cosmic reality. 
So this metaphysical dimension can be seen in the Vedas, especially in the Upanishads, and it was then greatly developed and expanded in the classical and post-classical periods. And in different ways, this Hindu metaphysics could borrow from Buddhism and Jainism and other sort of metaphysical philosophies while also developing its own counterpoints and with those alternative schools of thought. And Hindu metaphysics center particularly on the concepts of Brahman and Atman. So Brahman is the transcendent divine principle and the study and teaching about Brahman is sometimes called Brahmanism. And so Brahmanism arose partly as a competitor to Buddhism in the classical age. And then Atman is the individual soul, the soul of the human, the worshiper. And a lot of Hindu metaphysics is uh, examining and debating the relationship between the Brahman and the Atman. So I mentioned already, of course, Vedanta, which is a stream of Hindu philosophy that is particularly focused on this question, on the metaphysical questions of the relations between Brahman and Atman. And the name Vedanta at root just means extension or study of the Vedas, but it seeks to sort of push the spiritual and metaphysical speculation as far as they can go and to sort of seek, you could say, philosophical answers and enlightenment. But Vedanta, it's, it's not a unified singular school. There are different schools of thought within Vedanta that traditionally debate and contend with one another. So firstly, there is Dvaita Vedanta, which means duality or division. So Dvaita teaches that the human soul, the Atman, is essentially separate and distinct from the Brahman. And so the worship style that is promoted by Dvaita Vedanta involves reverence and devotion to the god. And you can think of, as I mentioned in Bhakti, the idea that the worshiper is a bride meeting the bridegroom of the god. That can be seen as in line with the Dvaita philosophy. Then the opposite is Advaita, which means non-division or non-duality. And this school emphasizes the oneness, the essential oneness of the soul and the transcendent divine. And so according to Advaita, the higher worship, the truly realized form of worship, is identification with the God, sort of losing the sense of self, the merging of the self into the Brahman or into the deity. And there are slogans in Advaita Vedanta like only a Shiva can worship a Shiva. Right? If you are fully committed to the worship, you become the God yourself or there is no, more properly, there's no distinction. And then in between, there's a sort of school of thought that tries to compromise or reconcile the two. And this is called Vishishtadvaita or qualified or modified Advaita. And this school tries to sort of uh, synthesize the sense of difference between the human and the divine while also affirming that there is an essential oneness. So you might think of it sort of in comparison like to the doctrine of the Trinity, the idea that uh, there, is, there are three persons with one essence. So Adi Shankara was the teacher or guru who emerged from southern India from the Kerala region at the southern end of India and 
really vigorously promoted Vedanta and put it forward as a richer, more complete alternative to Buddhism in the post-classical period. And he in particular taught Advaita Vedanta. And in his view, all things in the universe are essentially Brahman. They're all part of one essence. So it can be called a monistic philosophy. And according to Advaita, that which appears separate, the the sort of worldly multiplicity of things, of different creatures, different objects, different places, is actually illusory. And this is called maya, the sort of veil of illusion that covers over the underlying unity of all. So bhakti... Unlike, you know, Adi Shankara and his movement, Bhakti is generally Dvaita, or the basic assumptions are Dvaita, the idea that there is a difference, a separateness between the human and divine principles. But Bhakti is not doctrinaire. It's not an intellectual school with set teachers and texts. It is a popular movement, and metaphysically it's flexible, and it can play a role in all the different schools of thought in Vedanta. So ultimately, the flourishing of both of these movements, of Vedanta and Bhakti, this led to the enshrinement of a new goal or aim of life. So remember the foundational Hindu teaching is that there are three overriding human objects of life, dharma, artha, and kama. Well, by the end of the post-classical period, teachers had enshrined another one called moksha, which means the aim of spiritual liberation and spiritual enlightenment, which, similarly to the teachings of Buddhism, will free the soul from the sort of imprisoning forces of worldly life. So this led to a further synthesized philosophy of life, which affirms four basic purushartas, or human aims, dharma, artha, kama, and moksha. So dharma, the basic social and ethical rules, artha, the pursuit of wealth and success, kama, sensuality, and moksha, the final sort of ultimate ideal aim of life, which is spiritual freedom and enlightenment. So in sum, this sort of elaborated, synthesized belief system that we know as Hinduism had taken on more or less the form we see today with its different teachings, its different ethics, its spiritual dimension. And all of this had developed and been woven together into a larger system before then the encounter with Islam. So at the same time that Vedanta and Bhakti were taking off in the 8th and 9th centuries, this was also this, the first time that Islamic powers were beginning to conquer parts of India. And an important early event was the Islamic conquest of Sindh, which is the province, the coastal province in western India that's today part of Pakistan that was conquered by a Muslim invader from Persia in the year 712. So much of the rest of Indian history, an important theme through the rest of Indian history right up to today, is the exchange, the coexistence, the contention, and sometimes conflict between Hinduism and Islam. So I hope that this gives you a reasonable overall understanding of what Hinduism is. 
I would of course be interested in any of your thoughts, reactions, and again, if you want to hear my patron-only lectures, including my next one, which will be a myth of the month on Robin Hood, please sign up as a patron at any level. The link is in the description. Thank you.